Welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Olivia Frico. I'm here with our kids and YA specialist, Sarah McDooling. And today we are really excited to have Victoria Schwab with us. Or V.E. Schwab, as yeah, she's often known. Both of them. <laughs> I am both and either. I'm always really entertained when people know me as one and haven't figured out that I'm also the other. <laughs> it's also very fun because I obviously don't introduce myself as V.E. I think that would be rather yeah. pretentious. And so there will be like whole... Um, conferences or environments or parties where I introduce myself as Victoria and I'm talking with someone for a good like 30, 45 minutes before they're like, wait a second, what, like, what's one of your books? And then they like, the, you can see like the click in their head as they're like, oh, okay. I just had that thought while I was introducing you. I was like, I can't say VE because that's just too weird. I mean, it, it's like, it's my name. Like VE stands for Victoria Elizabeth. So it, it is my name. But it's also like people online will call me V. And I think that's just because online we're lazy and it's seven letters shorter than victoria (laughs) (laughs) what was the you've been published under both names what was the reason for the change well the um there's two answers to that question right there's the oh i just wanted to have a nice separation between my children's identity and my adult identity and there's truth to that it's because uh when vicious first came out my first adult novel it had an illustrated cover and i was nervous that some of my child and and young adult readers would see the illustrated cover and assume it was middle grade or younger and it is a very violent (laughs) very dark book i describe vicious as marvel meets dexter right like it's a very very dark edgy kind of thing and so i wanted that separation that's part of the answer the other part of the answer is that genre publishing is extremely sexist And the number of people I have that come up to me at events, purported fans, right? They're coming to my events and say to me, oh my God, I'm so glad I didn't know you were a woman. I never would have picked this up. Oh my God, really? Yeah. It's bad. The number of recently? Oh yeah. And the number of, I mean, the number of, because I'm quite young, the number of men who come up to me at conferences, like book conferences, and assume that I'm you know, a baby aspiring author and give me advice oh, no. on how to break into that. Like there's so many, there's so <laughs> many things. The number of times I've heard, oh, well, women just can't write that. The number of times I've watched just very recently, this happened, uh, a male author get extreme amount of credit for writing quote unquote, strong and unlikable female character. Oh. Whereas whenever a woman writes a quote-unquote unlikable female character, it's immediately a negative, right? There's there, there's a lot of problems in it. I uh, There's a, a thought that you can, you can just, like, live it, live your name, and be like, screw you. I prefer to be a Trojan horse, right? So I go in, somebody reads my book, and then they have to deal with the fact if they have any of these preconceived notions. So if someone becomes a fan of my work, and then they have to confront their own biases and hopefully I can shift them a little bit away from this ignorant mentality but it's exhausting I love that the Trojan yeah. horse tactic. yeah it's such a strange thing because being female readers ourselves like that's never anything we think about we just see a book we don't think about mm. oh it was written by you know this person of this gender but I have a lot of friends who are booksellers and say that people come into like men come into the bookshop and say I want a thriller but I want it written by a man oh I don't doubt that like they they, they specifically qualify this and it makes me so angry that I can't look directly at it. It's like the sun. <laughs> like, I just get very, like, if I look directly at it, I will go blind with rage. And so, yeah, I, I, and then the third reason, of course, is like, I think it's a shorter name is more aesthetically pleasing on a cover. If I could go back to now, I probably would retroactively make V.E. Schwab my only name. Mm. Uh, but I started with Victoria. It never really occurred to me 
to have a pseudo pseudonymous name. It's yeah. obviously not truly pseudonymous because it's me, <laughs> but yeah, it's weird. It's very weird. Circling back to that getting advice as though you're a baby aspiring author, Kim, because that just blows my mind. Yeah. <laughs> what happens when the penny drops? with people halfway through giving you advice yeah it's really (laughs) satisfying for me like my petty queen inside just gets very thrilled whenever I watch them try to like backtrack or I watch like the color flush in their face a little bit I mean here's the thing is like we all want validation and so it can be really nice to have that moment when somebody realizes that they already know who you are or that they might be holding one of your books or that that has happened where they genuinely have not put one with the other and realized who I am. It's happening less these days because I'm mm. quite public and my profile has risen over the last couple of years. And I'm quite recognizable. Like I have a very specific aesthetic. I have short red hair mm. and black and gold glasses and I wear all black. Like, and I'm very pale. I'm so, hugely successful. Oh, well, thank you. There's <laughs> that. But it's, so it's happening a little bit less on the in-person side, mm. but it still is one of those things where invariably I'm quite nosy. So I always look at like author photos when I'm going to events and stuff to get an idea of who everybody is. But a lot Mm. of people don't, they just see a book with a name on a cover. They don't really think of authors as people. Yeah, that's an, it's interesting because I'm being booksellers where I was like, okay, now I'm going to find you on Instagram, mm-hmm. find you on yeah. Twitter, which brings me to, you have an amazing, um, whenever I'm like, from from now on, whenever I'm trying to like uh, recommend your books to someone who hasn't read yeah. you before, I'm going to refer to the tweet that you've got. Pinned you... tweet, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I just got very tired. I, I mean, I, one day I'm going to have a shirt that says, I am not Google, because people will <laughs> come to me and just ask very very sometimes asinine questions but also Mm. it is very valid I now have 15 novels trying to find a place to start Mm. and they're all very different I don't write within one world I write I think six separate series that make up those 15 novels if I have my math right which is very possible that I don't (laughs) and and so it's I want to give people a place to start because I also think because my books are so different that if you start in the wrong place it might alienate you like, mm. if you don't love that book. I'm very fortunate that a vast majority of my readers will give me a second shot. They'll like something else about it. And so, but, but my books are not designed to always appeal to the same people. They're each designed with an, a specific one person audience in mind. Right. And I want to cater. I want to make sure that that one person feels seen and then everything, everyone else who feels seen and who loves the book is brilliant, but it's not the one person that I'm writing for. Because I think you have to have specificity. If you try to write a book for everyone, you appeal to no one. And so I try to write a book for a very specific someone. But yeah, so I have this pin tweet where I basically say, if you like, you know, X and Y, try Z. So like, for instance, with the Shades of Magic series, Darker Shade of Magic, it's Harry Potter and Avatar The Last Airbender. Because those were like the two things which informed. With the villain series, Vicious and Vengeful, it's Marvel and Dexter. So if yeah. you like Marvel, but like definitely the dark, anti-hero. sinister, <laughs> anti-hero side of it, like definitely if you if you liked Magneto, then, then Vicious is a book for you. If I can't remember what I did for the Savage Song, I think it's Alias meets Tokyo Ghoul. Yeah. So it's like a very anime influenced project for city of ghost it's stranger things meets ghost hunters so it's like you can go down the list and see what appeals to you or what doesn't and it's usually a nice little litmus test of where a reader should start i we we started um here at booktopia with ambitious because it was our book club book and that was like the gateway 
But reading that tweet, if I hadn't read any of them, I'd be like, well, any of them? They all sound good. That's a great sign. And I do have, I mean, I just did an event last night at um, Kinakunya. Mm-hmm. And it's taken me so many times to try yes. to figure out how to pronounce that. I think I say it different every time. Yeah. But I, the number of people who bring, you know, all 15 books or 10 of the books, and that makes me feel really glad because that means that even though generally they have favorites, mm. they still obviously have liked enough of the concepts to read all of them. And, and, and that's really extremely flattering to me because I go in knowing that you, every book can't be your favorite. Like I even look at some of my heroes, some of my favorite authors. I don't love all of their books uniformly. Yeah. I still mm-hmm. have favorites, but I love that my readership respects that I'm always trying something different in each book. I think what the thing that they respond to the most, and it's definitely what I do is just that intensive world building that you have. Like mm-hmm. the yeah. world of, um, Oh God, the shades of magic, yeah. magic completely went out of my head. <laughs> the shades of magic, that world is so incredibly written. Like from the first page. Thank you. Like that you don't even so have much. to say that much. You just, it's instantly in my head. And then it's so different again. Um, yeah. to vicious like take vicious for instance and like, it, like and you have two, two completely different stories <laughs> but, but i try so i yeah. try very hard to treat setting as a character right so setting is kind of really. the main character which makes the world building kind of the main character and a lot of this is because i'm a very cinematic thinker so when i actually write a novel or any form of story for that matter i see a movie in my head oh, and then i'm too. trying to transcribe that movie into a written form so that somebody else can see that same movie. And that sounds like every author does that, but it's not true actually, because like what I, what I'm, what I mean when I say that is that I don't also, I don't only have the story. I also have a color palette. I have a soundtrack. I have a vibe. And, and I, and that's the thing I'm trying to convey is not just the details of the plot, but the atmosphere of the world. And it comes through so strongly. Yeah. And I haven't even, I haven't, I'm still working my way through all, all of your books. The next one up for me is The Near Witch. Yeah. Um, I'm really looking forward to reading that. And you were telling us a little bit before the podcast that this has been republished. Yeah, this is my debut novel. And I think it's a bit disorienting because it, like, it only ever came out in the United States. So in the UK and in Australia, this is the first time it's ever been published, which is surreal. Yeah, I wrote this book when I was 21. Mm-hmm. I wrote it as a second semester senior at university, and it came out when I was 23, 24, so it had about a two-year lag, and it didn't do well, and it didn't do well because it wasn't good. It, like It wasn't that it wasn't good. It was because the amount of pressure that's put on a debut novelist is obscene. Mm-hmm. The, we treat... Like, there's this illusion in publishing, like, one book is going to make you. And the vast majority of writers, we are the product of a body of work, not a single novel. And yet the amount of expectation that's put on a debut novel to succeed, the assumption that it will be able to have an audience when you don't have an audience yet, when you're starting from zero, is a bit catastrophic for most Mm. books and a bit catastrophic for most authors because you invariably feel like a failure when the fact of the matter is you're not going to have the same audience on your first book that you have on your 15th. It's simply not going to happen. And so it was a combination of that and the fact that I write, as we've established, quite strange and quite dark and sometimes quite quiet. Mm. Like my books aren't always very loud. And The Near Witch first came out in 2011 at a time where everything in YA was very loud. And so it kind of just got lost. It was a little too quiet and it was a little too strange. And I hadn't found 
those specific readers yet. And I would go on to learn that the more specific I was in who I wrote for, the more people it would appeal to. It's this very paradoxical <laughs> notion that in writing for myself, I ended up finding a lot of readers like myself uh, and very, very different backgrounds, very different identities, but it struck a chord in mm. them. And part of that is that with a book like Vicious, you can tell that I'm having an absolute blast. Right, yeah. I think oh, there's yeah. just a relishing. Same with Vengeful. Uh, it was a much more complicated thing, but writing Marcella Riggins, who's the lead of Vengeful, a woman who can literally turn people to ash for not letting her finish her sentence, is like a very liberating <laughs> character to write in, in 2018, 2019. But yeah, and so Nearwitch went out of print very quickly, about 18 months in, because it just didn't find its people, because I hadn't found my audience yet. And so to have it come back now, 15 books in, when I have this fan base, this readership that gets me and that knows that my books are going to be strange and dark mm -hmm. and sometimes quiet or sometimes a little left of center and that there's not always going to be romance. So sometimes there's going to be a lot of death and, and examinations of the lines between things. I think I'm just very fortunate that I found that audience and that that audience has found me and that it's having this resurrection now. It's very exciting, but I think it's important for any writers listening to know that like the book didn't change. Mm. I didn't rewrite that book a decade later. Nothing changed about the actual story. And so what changed was the audience and the industry and the market and the investment. All of these things changed, things which are very much out of the writer's control. And so it's just important to remember that you can do everything right and you could still not be the right time, not be the right audience. And so I just think it's very fascinating to look at the way the Near Witch came out in 2011 versus the way it's come out in 2019. And people are receiving it much more positively now. And I think that's fascinating. That must be, have you, gosh, like the conversations you must have had with 21-year-old you in your mind mm. over that. It's hard. <laughs> and I mean, it's literally 21-year-old me versus 31-year-old me, because that's how old I am now. And and it is a decade of difference. And it is really funny, because I do think if you read The Near Witch, you can see the beginnings of almost every one of the themes and motifs and styles that I would go on to kind of be known for. But they were very, they're more tentative. Like I'm taking first steps on a road and I look at Lexi, the main character in the near witch, and she's so reminiscent of 21 year old me that there was still a lot of hope there. And there was a lot of trying to find my place in an environment instead of just breaking out of that environment and redefining it. And I think the difference between 21 year old me and 31 year old me is the difference between Lexi, the main character of the near witch and Marcella, the main character are vengeful. Like, there's a lot of anger there, but there's a lot of confidence as well. I can't wait to read it. And mm. hearing your description of it is a little bit too quiet and a little bit too strange. Yeah. It's just like increased my desire to read it. Not even in yeah. a cynical marketing sense. It's just like a series that springs to mind when, like, I think that quiet and tentative magic is something like The Raven Boys, yeah. Maggie yeah. Stafford, which I love. So you've just kind of sold the new witch to me. <laughs> Oh, it's so amazing talking to you. Yeah, thank you um, so much for having me. You're, are we allowed to ask what's up next? Yeah, of course, yeah, of yeah. course. So I have a children's series. Children's is a weird way of putting it. I have a middle grade series, so the mm -hmm. age bracket below YA. But I even don't like that because 
I believe that books can have a lower age threshold, but they don't have an upper age threshold. So like City of Ghosts, my children's series, has a lower age threshold of nine or 10. Mm -hmm. I think that's really kind of the age you need to be to start that series. But it doesn't have an upper age threshold, you know, yeah. like my 50 and 65 and 75 year old readers, which you should feel absolutely encouraged to read it. It simply means that that's the entry point. It needs yeah. to appeal mm -hmm. to readers at that age. So City of Ghosts is... Um, my very weird Stranger Things meets ghost hunting series about a girl who almost <laughs> dies and comes back with the ability to see the dead and her ghost best friend, Jacob. And it's set in different cities because her parents are working on a paranormal television show and they travel the world exploring the most haunted cities. And so book one is set in Edinburgh, Scotland, and book two, Tunnel of Bones, which comes out this fall, is set in Paris, France. And those have just been an absolute blast. I'm so excited for readers to get the second installment. And then my next adult novel, my next kind of big adult project is actually a standalone called The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue. It's been in the works for about eight years for me. I wasn't ready to write it for a very long time. And then now I am. And it is the story of a young woman in early 18th century France who is living the kind of life where she's becoming afraid that she's going to die in the same place she was born without ever, ever seeing anywhere else. And so in desperation to get out and to live, she decides to summon an old God. She's going to summon a God and ask for help. And she tries at dawn and no one answers. And she tries at midday and no one answers. And she tries at dusk and no one answers. And she makes a terrible mistake. She's always been warned never to pray to the gods who answer after dark. But she does. And she essentially summons the devil. And she tells the devil that she wants to live forever because she can't think of an, a time that would be enough, right? She doesn't want to define it. And the devil says no, because the devil doesn't get your soul until the deal is done. And if she lives forever, then he'll never get her soul. So it's not particularly advantageous to him. And in her recklessness and desperation, uh -huh. Addie tells the devil that he can have her soul when she doesn't want it anymore. And sensing an opportunity, the devil grants her the ability to live forever and curses her to be forgotten by everyone she meets. Oh my goodness. And so it's about her life over 300 years. I just got so many chills. Which was... <laughs> so that's due out next fall. That's what I'm working on wow. while I'm here on tour in Australia. Uh, that sounds incredible. <laughs> um... Uh, huh. <laughs> so you that's just the elevator pitch and I'm just like, yeah oh, I, made, I made myself stop so that's the first chapter what of the book that is amazing yeah uh, and can I just say as well when you were t when you were telling us that story you have a storyteller voice yes, oh, thank it's, you. <laughs> it's so good thank you like my my mom is English it. and I feel like I grew up listening to her tell me stories at night and I also grew up in poetry and so I think having an awareness of cadence yeah. but thank yeah. you that yeah. means a lot to me that was that was magic now I mean we're sort of running a little bit out of time but I did just have one more yes. question that I want to ask which is um so you write as you mentioned you write middle grade and why and, mm -hmm. and young adult and as someone who like reads all of those and sort of finds the um the definition yeah to be really murky um how do you kind of know when you when an idea is coming how do you know where it's going to sit in that range that's a really, really good question because it's usually has to do with the theme 
So like there are differences in theme, like what, if I'm dealing with a story that I know is about identity, um, then that tends to be a bit more YA or feeling like the things I felt when I was a teenager, like I didn't belong, like the world was, you know, against me, all of these things. If it's about moving through that world, then I feel like it's adult. And if it's about fighting something more external, then I feel like it's for children. But the truth is I write all of my books for a version of me. So when I talk about that single individual reader that I'm writing for, when I'm writing middle grade, I'm writing for 10 year old me. And so I, I, that's the only person I know, you know, I, I don't know anyone else. I know myself, uh, in terms of that really internal mechanism way. And so I know who I was at 10. It was a really weird, morbid, little girl who felt like she didn't belong anywhere. And when I'm writing my YA novels, I'm writing for 17-year-old me. And it's still weird and and morbid and didn't feel like I belong, but there was a little bit more anger there. And there was a bit more uh, compartmentalization. Like I truly um, felt very alone. And so when I'm writing a character like Kate Harker in this savage song, that's who I'm writing. That's who I'm writing and who I'm writing for. I'm writing the stories I wanted to see at different times mm. and that I didn't. So also like with city of ghosts, when I was writing for 10 year old me, I wanted to see something scary. Like horror is at its best for children. I think yeah. it gives them a huge amount of power uh, to know that you can pick it up and put it down, that you're a bit more in control. I wanted that. I needed that because my brain was a really dark place and I didn't need a, I didn't need a book to tell me that the world was light. I needed a book to see me. To say it's okay that you feel the world is a really dark place. Here's how, like, here's a light and how, here's how we get through it. And so when I'm writing my adult novels, these books become time capsules of who I am at the time I'm writing them because I'm always writing for that age. So Vicious is a book that I wrote absolutely for 25 year old me. <laughs> whereas Vengeful was a book I wrote for 30 year old me and I was a different person at 25 yeah. and 30. I was interested in different things and I had different themes and I had come out and I, I had a different identity and a sense of awareness. Um, a darker shade of magic I wrote for 27 year old me. Addie is a book that I have chosen to write for 31 year old me. I first had the idea when I was 23 and I wasn't ready to write it. And I don't think it would have been the same book if I had written it at any other age than the age I am right now. And if I had waited another decade and written it for 41 year old me, it wouldn't be the same book. But this is the age I want to be speaking to is this yeah. sense of, you know, you, you hit adulthood, you cross that threshold. 30 is the threshold in which you really like you are firmly an adult regardless kind of of like how delayed your your youth was you are an adult <laughs> and and that is so scary and 30 is that age that you hit and you start thinking oh my god i have lived a very fair portion of my life so far and what have i done mm -hmm. and you start having a little bit of like existential panic about it like am i living the life i want to live am i in the place i want to be and so that kind of existential panic is something i really want to examine in Addy. And so I just look at who I am and who I'm writing for. Gosh, that was amazingly well answered. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have, so you said that you first came up with the idea for Addy mm -hmm. um, oh, quite a while ago. How many others are like brewing away for yeah. the oh, future? Not that, it's usually not that long. So my usual steep time on a project is between six months and a year and a half. Okay. So I think Darker Shade of Magic was in brewing for about a year before okay. I started writing it. I need to know a few things before I start writing a book. I need to know the tone. I need to know the voice. I need to know the tense. But most importantly, I need to know the end. 
And if I don't have an ending that I love, that I'm very excited to write, I won't start the book because I, I need it to feel like a field, not a desert. A desert is this thing you can't see the end of. Yeah. I need it to feel like there's a goalpost at the other side and a place I'm excited to meet. So I probably have right now, I mean, I mean, I'm under contract through like 2023. So that's just sold books, which all have ideas, obviously all have their, their pitches and such. Um, I, I'm not concerned about running out of ideas. Yeah. That thing, I think very early on in my career, I was very scared of that. And now I have such a long on deck period for my ideas that something new is always coming to me and getting like, I never run out of on deck. So um, as I move projects into the foreground, as I move projects onto the front burner, invariably start loading new ideas onto the back burner. I just, I, I, it's not a thing where I ever really get low on them. It's more a problem that I just don't have enough time. Yeah. Oh, well, I'm, as fans, we're pleased to hear that you're not going to run out. Mm-hmm. I know. <laughs> It's my reading. Not soon. <laughs> my reading's wonderful. Yeah, a couple of years. And so I'm interested to. to I'm so pushing us over time. No, I'm interested to know that you always have your end when you start writing. Uh, aside from knowing that ending, how much do you outline and uh, plan? I outline quite a bit. I outline more now than I used to. And part of that is because my relationships with my publishers are such that I sell books on proposals. And so I do need to have like a fairly solid strategy. I also, though, I have come to be the kind of person who enjoys having a map. And the thing is, like when people delineate between people who fly by the seat of their pants and people who outline very heavily, it's very black and white thinking. Whereas the truth is like they think, oh, if you like freedom and discovery and excitement, then you have to not have a plan. And if you like, you know, meticulously executing every detail bit for bit, then that's how you have a plan. Whereas for me, I look at it as like, I like to have a map so that I can wander. And I like to have the map so that I can wander without ever getting terribly lost. So I might go five to 10,000 words in the wrong direction on a book, but I'll never go 50. I'll never have to scrap. And that's just something that for me, I do get a huge amount of pleasure out of executing a strategy or an idea. So I need to have a map for that reason. And the other reason, to be honest, is that I write out of order. And so having a strict outline allows me to write the individual chapters out of order as I please. And I do that because like for a project like Addie, which is very introspective and very intense, I can look at it and say, okay, emotionally, uh, energy wise, like what am I ready to write today? So I can choose like maybe I'm in a really great place and I have a huge amount of energy and focus. I'm going to tackle one of the harder scenes in the book. Sometimes I'm not. Sometimes I'm traveling and I'm like, you know what? I'm going to write a sex scene. Like I just, <laughs> I'm going to write a sex scene with the devil. Like this is a thing I'm going to write today. Like, so I give myself freedom so that I don't get stuck. Freedom that I'm always have the space and the focus to create by having a plan. Mm. I, I just want to keep talking. <laughs> we are pushing time. We, we are, um, Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's my absolute (laughs) pleasure. It's been amazing. And I don't know about you, but Vengeful was literally shot to the top of my to-be-read list. It is a book about angry women. (laughs) Well, so Vengeful specifically, like, Vengeful is a book that's in conversation with Vicious. Vicious is a very male book, very Mm. masculine book. Um, It's about toxic, you know, toxic masculinity, about toxic male friendships, about obsession, especially between men, um, and jealousy and covetousness and all these things. And Vengeful is a book about the way in which the world tries to take power and agency from women 
and about the ways in which three women take it back. So it's about Marcella Riggins, who's an ex-mob wife. Uh, she's an ex-mob wife because her husband tried to burn her house down with her inside, and so she doesn't really <laughs> feel like calling herself a mob wife anymore. She's a bit <laughs> done with that chapter of her life. Uh, who has the ability to turn anyone and anything to ash. And it's the story of June, perhaps my favorite EO, my favorite superpowered person of all time, who's essentially a walking, talking voodoo doll. So what happens is she, a la Mystique from X-Men, she can take on a person's physical identity. But if someone tries to hurt her, the person she's wearing gets hurt. So she's Very invulnerable, cool. <laughs> but on the cost of she can never be herself. Right. Mm-hmm. And then we have Sydney, who we first meet in Vicious, who has the ability to resurrect the dead. And so these three women are kind of at the heart. And it's obviously a story that's still about Victor and Eli. They have their own narratives. But if, if Vicious is a story about Victor and Eli taking control, mm-hmm. right, of their life, of their power, of everything, Vengeful is a story about Victor and Eli losing control. You know, yeah. go, being plunged into, into prison, into chaos, being, you know, being stripped of their agency as these three female characters find ways to retake agency and space in the world. I'm so excited. I always feel like clapping every time you think. <laughs> <laughs> the impulse Aww. is there and I'm like, wait, no, inappropriate. Well, thank you. <laughs> We should probably wrap it up. It's become a bit like one of those conversations yeah. where you're like, okay, now I've got to go. No, I'm just going to put a bit longer. Okay, now bye. I know, you I'm having so up. much fun. I'm having so much fun. I don't want this to end. Um, but. Alas. 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 <laughs> it must end. All good things. <laughs> so, um, you can find literally all of the books that we've talked about in this podcast today on booktopia.com.au, um, especially The Near Witch, which has been republished. Um, definitely go out and get yourself a copy. I hope we've convinced you. (laughs) Thank you, Victoria. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Booktopia podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes. And if your eyeballs need a workout, check us out on YouTube at Booktopia TV. And don't forget for all books featured on this episode and all episodes of the Booktopia podcast, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore at www.booktopia.com.au. Thanks for listening.